0: The greatest sorcerer who ever lived is back. Willow comes to the small screen with the newest live action series from Lucasfilm, and it is full of magic, fantasy, and romance. Join us as we dive into Lucasfilm's fantasy world of past and present. Welcome to Sky Talkers. Here are your hosts, Charlotte and Caitlin. Hello, and welcome to Sky Talkers. I'm your host, Charlotte.
1: Hey, everyone. I'm your other host, Caitlin, and welcome to this week's episode where we are not talking about Star Wars. But we are still talking about Lucasfilm. We we're talking
0: about Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, In a
1: small way. <laughs> we are here to talk about Lucasfilm, Willow, the new show that just came out, our experience at the premiere, a little bit of the history, all that good stuff. And I'm excited because I am a new Willow fan.
0: Yes. Honestly, I am too. I've seen the movie. I watched the movie a long time ago. And I liked it. My parents really liked it. And I've always talked about how much they liked it. So... I've been aware of Willow for a long time, but Caitlin and I are both relatively new Willow fans, okay? And as people who are Lucasfilm fans, probably in a a really big way, (laughs) it was fascinating to dive into the history, and I'm excited to share that and talk through the movie, what we liked about the movie, the original movie from 1988, and then also the new show, which we both really like. So (laughs) maybe we should start with the new show and talk about how we're recording this on Sunday, December 4th. And about four days ago, we were in Los Angeles for a quick 24-hour trip to go to the Willow premiere in Westwood, Los Angeles. Kaylin, what what was the experience like? Let's talk about it. What were some highlights?
1: The experience was... Super fun. It was definitely a whirlwind of a trip. Like Charlotte said, it was 24 hours. 30 I think by all in from start to finish by the time we got home but it was it was super fun um we both left the east coast at like 6 a.m the day of the premiere and uh I was working from there so got to Los Angeles did some work walked around ate tacos um and then we got ready for the premiere and it would like the actual premiere event itself um, we got to go to the under one earlier this year and i gotta say i think the willow one was like i don't know it felt more special um yeah which feels, it was smaller it was smaller, it was smaller but like the actual red carpet area if you will like where they have you walk down they had like an entire forest inside the tent. It just it it was so cool and it, everything was like lit in purples and greens and that fantasy element and it was just super like the the tent itself was really full if you know what i mean like of costumes and then like the forest and the trees and like the promotional posters are so fun and fantastical. It just I don't know. I really felt like I was kind of stepping into the forest with Willow. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I totally agree. It was also really, it was smaller. So this one in at Andor, that was on Hollywood Boulevard, like across from the Gromans Chinese Theater. It was at the El Capitan. This was in Westwood at a smaller theater, but the theater was gorgeous and it's the uh, Regency Village Theater. And the original Willow actually premiered there, which is really special. John Casden gave some remarks about how he was in the audience there, probably with his dad. And he was mind blown by the movie and like really scared by <laughs> some of the elements of that movie. And honestly, it was a genuinely lovely little intro that he gave and Warwick Davis gave as well. But it was really cool to just be among that and you know as if you're a long-time listener of Sky Talkers, like we love <laughs> like witnessing I don't know these like Lucasfilm legends so Caitlin and I were I don't know it's just great it, it was it's so special and yeah I totally agree though the fantasy element I think made it so different and cool and I feel so lucky and grateful that we were able to go and have that experience it, it was really cool.
1: Yeah, it was it was super special and got to see a lot of friends while we were out there too and it just made for a really really fun 30 hours. <laughs> yes. I will say Charlotte and I both had very Interesting return homes. Our flights and everything was kind of a total hot mess. Uh coming back to the East Coast. But we we both made it home eventually, but it was a little touch and go there for a couple hours. It was honestly. touch and go.
0: <laughs> to be honest, like looking back, I think it could have been worse, but it felt yeah. really uh felt felt really touch and go at the time. Yeah. yeah. I
1: mean, <laughs> you lot. had you had flight attendants on your flight threatening police action for yes. smoking smoking in the lavatory I can't I can't <laughs> Which feel like who's doing that in 2022 <laughs> I,
0: I know it was just sort of like wow the vibe is off everything <laughs> was going wrong and it was sort of like what is this sign because I just had a great time in Los Angeles like <laughs> what so is weird. what's awaiting me at home turns out nothing we made it home safely it was fine <laughs> but it, was, it, it was, was strange
1: it was very strange and on my flight I actually got in back to Atlanta 40 minutes early, which I was like, wow, this is great. This, this doesn't happen very often. Like that's, that's arriving really early. Uh, But then the plane that was at our gate beforehand hadn't left Atlanta yet. So we were stuck in line, like waiting for a gate to open up for 40 minutes. (laughs) So then we were on time and then we pull in to the gate and the jet bridge, has had a power failure and so then we're stuck for another 30 minutes (laughs) waiting for the jet bridge to get a mechanic to come and the pilot literally comes on the over the speaker and he was like it's about a 10 to 12 foot drop so that's not an option and you guys should probably sit down let's not get our hopes up
0: It's like, just like okay. sometimes when things are late and running behind on planes And I experienced this on my flight because mine was like four hours delayed The vibe just like shifts to feral you know? <laughs> <laughs> Like it just gets really chaotic when people just want to get off the plane Or they've been waiting yeah. for the plane for so long And I think that's what Caitlin and I were both experiencing And anyway, we're here to talk about Willow today yes. I'm wearing a Willow t-shirt that I got from Shop Disney And I love it very happy to be like dressed for the occasion. So um, anyway, great time in Los Angeles, weird time going home. (laughs) Wish we were still there. (laughs) Wish we could experience that again. And uh, anyway, let's talk about Willow, 1988 movie, and then later we'll talk about the new series. So in part one, we're going to be talking about a history of Willow and Star Wars and how They're all intertwined. And in part two, we're going to be talking all about our favorite elements from Willow. And then in part three, we're going to be talking about the new series, Willow. We're going to be talking about the first two episodes. Without further ado, let's get started.
1: So who talks first? You talk first? I talk
0: first. So welcome to part one. We're going to be talking about Willow's history. It's no secret that Caitlin and I love production history. We love the behind the scenes of it all. We really, really do. So diving deep, like I said earlier was really interesting and super fun. And I think um whenever you do this, when you do this with Indiana Jones, when you do this with like any animation, strange magic, Clone Wars, I mean, that's Star Wars, but you you know what I'm talking about. It's great because you realize that it's all cut from the same cloth that made Star Wars successful and we're talking about the same people, it's the family. It's really cool. So, George Lucas actually conceived of the idea of Willow in 1972, which was before Star Wars. I think that is interesting to note, and it was sort of kicking around in his head and the concept was really that he had thought about all these different ideas for young people and I think when we talk about Star Wars and we talk about the origin of Star Wars, I think that he was combining a lot of, like an amalgamation of what's successful and what he saw as like solid pop culture, a mixture of art, a mixture of what's like tapping into the cultural zeitgeist and I think... George Lucas's idea here was really similar again it is like a s- story against good and evil similar to Star Wars but it really drives home a lot of the fantasy tropes and something i think is interesting is i think that there's a way to view Star Wars through the lens of a fairy tale and fantasy you could call it a space fantasy i George Lucas has in the past i know we talk about space opera but There's a lot of tropes that fall into the fantasy genre, but Willow really leans deep. It's hard fantasy, right? It really is fantasy. I think the new series is more like YA fantasy, but the original movie is very much sort of tropey, maybe to some reviewers' grin, but that's like kind of the reason that I like it. (laughs) Anyway, so he conceives of this idea in 1972 really early. Um, Just to keep in mind, willow doesn't come out until 1988 in 1982 george lucas approach approaches warwick davis to be willow eventually after working with him in return of the jedi as Wicket, something that caitlin thinks is hilarious <laughs> that will come up i know is that willow in the original film is 17 <laughs> like uh, wick uh, warwick, warwick davis. davis is 17 when he is playing willow and he's a father of two married grown children. <laughs> and
1: I mean, like, grown they're not children. babies, they're independent.
0: <laughs> it's just like, okay, I mean, <laughs> sure, it's just <laughs> the teenage father of it all. I mean, it's, it's all good it's just they're they're grown you know it makes you think. So uh, yeah it really does but so i can just imagine the conversation of george approaching warwick davis about this being like i want you to play a great sorcerer and yeah you have a family and warwick is like 16 15 during this time right like he's really young when he played wicket no,
1: he's in 1982 in 1988 warwick davis was 17. 17 or 18. Oh, my God. So, ninth, like, th- this was the thing, right? Because I watched Willow for the first time, I don't know, a couple months ago now at this point. Not long ago at all. And uh, anyway, I was <laughs> texting Charlotte through it, and I was like, how... Old is Warwick Davis supposed to be in this in this movie? And I was like, he what he was. I was second guessing everything I knew about Warwick Davis and Return of the Jedi. I was like, he was absolutely a child in Return of the Jedi, right? Like that's the whole thing. <laughs> and Charlotte was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, what the are we not connecting the
0: dots? 17 <laughs> year old father of two grown children who are walking and talking and carrying a baby. I
1: don't know. Sounds like he looks so anyway. young. And he was, in fact, so young.
0: <laughs> right. Here's and no I think. Warwick Davis is great. I think he is the right choice to play Willow. He is Willow. But it, it's kind of funny in hindsight just to look back. Yeah. I guess. At, the, at the premiere
1: when um, we were watching
0: the first two episodes and Mims
1: comes on screen, Charlotte and I both look at each other and are like, teenage father <laughs>
0: 17 year old 17. <laughs> and like again there's nothing it's fine no, it's it, just it is fine it was just the way the way that it would be would be that he would be like 10 years old when he had these two children does that make
1: sense <laughs> i think because i i actually didn't know a lot about i didn't know the children existed in willow um like willow's children before i saw the movie so i think they were like, I've seen plenty of images and, like, clips and stuff from it, but I'd never seen the kids. So, like, I, I think I remember, like, how young Warwick Davis is in that movie. So then it was like, oh, wait, there are kids here. <laughs> A child. <laughs> anyway, it was funny. And, uh, yes, I would be interested to know what Warwick Davis thought of being of, of his of his Me whole too. family at that point yeah. in his life.
0: <laughs> totally. Anyway, so George then in 1985, he had a couple of ideas kicking around. He had a couple of balls in the air in terms of productions and things that he was interested in doing with Lucasfilm post-Star Wars. Um, He approaches Ron Howard to direct the movie in 1985 right after Ron did Cocoon. And then Ron Howard, a close friend with George, agrees and he suggested Bob Dolman to write the story and the screenplay based off of George's own story. So this is where we get into the the meaty part, which I always think is fun to discuss. In the fall of 1986, George and Ron had Bob join them at Skywalker Ranch for a, a, a story for a lengthy story conference, which in, which eventually morphed into seven drafts um, written in the coming months for the movie Willow. Um, I think it might be pretty obvious to say, but the concept of story conferences comes up so often when we talk about history and Star Wars and how George liked to assemble people and then just sort of talk out ideas. And I have a couple quotes about this, but it comes up all the time, doesn't it, Caitlin? That there's just always these story conferences and to the point where it comes up today. And I know that this is a common practice in film, but it really seems like George Lucas and Lucasfilm specifically, um, leaned on this as a way to sort of iterate ideas and to talk it out. But I think with George Lucas, I'm not so sure it was a free flowing discussion as much as it was George Lucas being like, here's what I think we should do. How can you write it? <laughs> That's just know. my sort of headcanon. I don't know.
1: I mean, you think even uh, it feels like I think part of the, the impetus for even building the ranch was for this type of purpose explicitly for conferencing so it feel like for conferencing um for For story meetings and stuff like that, um, to have this place kind of away from Hollywood and all of that. And even thinking Mm -hmm. like it feels very much like a rite of passage to be able to come up and stay at the ranch and even thinking about the High Republic and how they basically had, you know, whole weekends just up at the ranch uh, developing the stories for the High Republic. Like this is very much a thing. And yeah, rite of passage. I, I wonder what kind of like do you get to go home with a bottle of Skywalker? wine, you know what I mean, from the vineyard. <laughs> it just feels like everyone kind of gets this, not everyone gets this opportunity. But like you said, yeah, so many people, there are so many examples of people going up to the ranch and having these story conferences and kind of hashing out uh, these these new projects that are you know coming down the pipeline.
0: Yeah. In Brian J. Jones's biography on George Lucas, which I highly recommend. Caitlin and I reference it all the time. Brian writes, Dolman was dispatched to Skywalker Ranch to spend several days with Lucas and Howard in story conferences. Always one of Lucas's favorite parts of the process is he could talk through plots and characters, then hand them off to a screenwriter without ever having to bleed on the page himself. I think we know that writing is stressful for George. I think we saw that throughout the, the prequels. I think one of my favorite images, I guess, from a documentary is george lucas being like i'm starting writing the phantom menace and he like goes up into his tower (laughs) (laughs) look out his yellow notepad right and the yellow notepad like has like four words on it like an hour later and i i just think it's a it's a struggle for george and i think it was a struggle at this point in his his time i guess and uh yeah. So I, I like that there's a lot of um, references, I guess, to how much <laughs> George appreciates this process and getting to not have to have his basically his name credited for writing and that someone else does the hard work of creating a screenplay.
1: You got to admire that, though, honestly.
0: <laughs> totally. <laughs> I, I definitely do. I'm like, this is the way that this is a, I think, a mark of me, potentially a good producer, to be honest, uh, is understanding your weaknesses. But yeah. So again, in the George Lucas biography, Brian J. Jones said this, writing Willow in that story conference. With the, with his story for Willow, Lucas had distilled all the elements he loved before from fairy tales, movies, and folklore. There's a bit of Moses, a dash of Lord of the Rings, a nod to The Wizard of Oz to tell the story of Willow Ufgood, a farmer from a race of small people who find a full size baby and must must return her to her own people whom she's destined to rule as their princess. Lucas dug deep into his work for inspiration as well. He was determined, for example, to finally make a movie with little people as heroes, an idea he had flirted with but then abandoned in Star Wars. And at its heart was a theme Lucas loved, Mr. Average Man Rises to the Occasion. That's a quote from George Lucas, Mr. Average Man (laughs) Rises to the Occasion. Dolman worked his way through seven drafts before he, Howard, and Lucas were finally happy with it. Any thoughts?
1: Yeah, I think that this whole process for Willow, this kind of inspiration and, and brainstorming this vision board, if you will, for Willow, it's very in line with kind of everything we see from George Lucas, you know what I mean? You know, bits of Moses, Lord of the Rings, fairy tales, movies, folklore, elements of that are in everything. And I think something about George Lucas is that he's very unabashed in kind of Like you were saying earlier about fairy tale tropes and fantasy tropes being, you know, to some critics almost too heavy handed in a film like Willow. But that's why we like it. And I think that's why George Lucas likes to write those kinds of stories, even thinking mm-hmm. about later stuff like Strange Magic um, and like how much those rely, how much that film kind of relies on fairy tale tropes and, you know, fantasy tropes and romance tropes and things like that. That's something that's very much in George's wheelhouse or perhaps wheelhouse isn't the right word to say, but I think he just enjoys that kind of storytelling a lot. That's what we see throughout so much of his career and kind of everything he's done has uh, that touch to it. And I think uh, Willow is kind of it's kind of like that pure fantasy side of it mm-hmm. in a lot of ways.
0: Yeah, I think that's kind of what I meant when, I was saying that every time you dive into a Lucasfilm picture, you feel that there's a a touch of reflection of other work within it. And I think that this is, that's a really good way to put it. It's that this is such like a pure example of George's interest in fantasy. And yeah, like Brian J. Jones wrote, there's a bit of Moses, a dash of Lord of the Rings, a nod to Wizard of Oz. Like there's a bunch of different pieces of culture and art that comprise in Willow and it works for some people and it works for it doesn't work for others. And I think the same can be said about like different pieces of media with Star Wars. And I I just always appreciate that about Lucasfilm Productions is that if you're interested in a certain piece of genre, you can find reflections of them in every single like production, you know?
1: Well, not to mention, you know, Skywalker Ranch has its entire uh, reference library for a reason. Yes.
0: Yep. Yeah, oh man, just to visit that someday. I don't even know where to even begin. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, Um, so shooting began in 1987 with George Lucas as the executive producer. Um, And before this, it was really tough for the film to secure any funding. People didn't really think that the fantasy genre was successful at this specific time. This is something I want to dig into a little bit later with sort of flops like Labyrinth, and I can't remember another one, I didn't write it down, um, that happened a couple years before. So studios weren't keen to provide funding, but George Lucas's savior, Alan Ladd Jr., who <laughs> has helped him a lot, secured $35 million for rights and licensing. He was the then CEO of MGM. So that's how they were able to make it made, again, with this small pool of people that George is always leaning on, you know, and th- these names just come up constantly. Yeah, so then in 1988, the film was released to so-so reviews, and there was a lot of discussion around this time of George Lucas, like, taking a step back from filmmaking. I love George Lucas, and I think that he is... A hero of both Caitlin and I, but I think that this was a tough era for him. Okay. (laughs) And with Howard the Duck coming out, and I think that that is sort of legendarily like a quote unquote bad movie. And I think him taking a step back from like just producing, not writing, I think that that was, there was a self awareness there about that. But back to the conversation about like fantasy not being profitable. So this movie came out in 1988 and there's a whole conversation about fantasy movies not being profitable, but a big movie that came out at that time was the princess bride, which I think is a classic now (laughs) when we think about movies and we think about fantasy, but that movie like sort of subverted the whole genre of fantasy in a lot of ways. It was self-referential. Is this a kissing movie? You know, Willow I think was teetering on the, the self-referential, um, Tone, and I think the new series actually does it really well. Um, But it wasn't quite at the level that the Princess Bride was, you know? And I think that they were all like, fantasy movies at this time period and this is just sort of an armchair theory we're trying to figure out like what is the future of this genre and it's also fascinating because we're living in a time right now it's december 2022 where we've had a slew of awesome fantasy series come out with uh, rings of power with the resurgence of the game of thrones series house of the dragon now willow i'm i'm missing more and it just feels like everywhere i look there's a new fantasy series and it hasn't felt like that in a while and personally, again, with my armchair theory, I think it's because we're coming out of a time period of a, a pandemic where we're we're wishing for not like not to live in our own reality that we want stories that are fantastical that take us away that is escapism, and I think that's something that Caitlin and I have talked about for years about how Star Wars touches on reality, but it's what's so great about it is it is like escapist fiction, and I think Willow. At this time, like maybe just wasn't hitting the right marks, but perhaps it is right now, you know, because it feels like it's it's within the cultural zeitgeist of like it's in conversation with what the the fantasy series are experiencing right now, I guess.
1: Yeah, it's kind of crazy to me that in this period, George was kind of struggling to get funding for a project he wanted to do. It's something right. that's always kind of surprising that comes up so often in George Lucas's uh, career and in his history. Of course, even thinking about things like the Lucas Museum of Narrative Art and, and the trouble you know, with where that was going to go. Obviously, that's not the same as funding, but um, I think you guys know what I mean, that there are just a lot of these roadblocks and a lot of people, um, what's the word, resistant to some of the things that George Lucas wants to do or pursue. And I just, I find that so interesting because, Even though there are things that aren't as successful as other things, obviously, in George Lucas's career, it's, I don't know, it's just surprising that you don't give someone like that, like, oh, it's George Lucas? All right. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. You know, even if it's not the next Star Wars, it's probably still going to be nominally successful. And even if not everything is even nominally successful, I don't know, it's like, it's George Lucas you should do it. You know what I mean? <laughs> I don't know, it's just always something that's kind of surprising to me that comes up a, a lot in his history of of people who are resistant to the things he wants to do. And I don't know. I it's it's kind of something I want to think more about um like as we continue on in this podcasting journey, you know what I mean? But I was kind of surprised to learn this about the history of Willow, honestly, especially, you know, right after the conclusion of the original trilogy.
0: Yeah, I think there's also an interesting concept that we're talking around in that we're try- we're talking about how George struggled to get funding for Willow. He eventually got it, which I totally agree with you that it is surprising given the fact that you would think that when you make the number 1 movie of all time, it would just be easy to make whatever you want. Yeah. And I think this is sort of a struggle that George has kind of come up against his entire life, right? Like he has talked often about, you know, the big Hollywood machine and Raging against the Hollywood machine. Why they're in San Francisco? I mean, that's just a theme that continues over and over and over again about how George wants to meet them, like the the path of least resistance. Right? Is George's whole thing? He just wants to make art. And I think there was a good um, New York Times article in 1987 that I found uh, about that was a profile of George Lucas and George says the underlying issues, the psychological motives in all my movies have been the same. He said, personal responsibility and friendship, the importance of a compassionate life as opposed to a passionate life. Um, I, I wanted to include that. And just because I think that the importance of a compassionate life as opposed to a passionate life is a, all-timer quote to think about the Jedi versus the Sith and how he you frame like the good and evil argument that selfish, George is constantly exploring. Selfish, yes, yeah. selfish. Yeah, but I just don't think I had thought about, you know, passion versus compassion in the same like duality that I had with then like selfish, selfish, light, dark. But to me, if I was a producer, and I guess this is kind of how Alan Alan Ladd Jr. felt as well if George comes with me to an idea, I'm going to fund it. <laughs> you know, I think that that's maybe it was a little bit more difficult back then. And I'm not a Hollywood producer. I so know. I don't know. It's just,
1: but it's so crazy, right? Like Alan Ladd Jr. is the <laughs> one who got the funding for Star Wars in the first place. So what he goes back to these studios and they're like, no, we don't we don't want to do it. And he's like, are you like what this? What yeah, if okay. this is the next Star Wars? Like, that's got to be the pitch, right. right? And he's like, didn't I bring you Star Wars before? What if this is it? The next thing? You know, I don't know. Yes. Just,
0: whatever. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, no, no. It's not whatever. The thing that we're missing here in this conversation that I I just completely bowled over because I wanted to read that compassionate, passionate quote is that there's a whole component that makes Willow what it is today. And that is the fact that it Was extremely technology driven. Yeah. So part of me wonders that in this conversation of like, we can't get money for it, it's not just the genre. It's probably, wow, George, you have really lofty ideas (laughs) of how much money it's going to take to do these insane special effects. And like, that's a huge theme of George Lucas's whole production history as well, right? Like, waiting until it's going to be the perfect time in order to do the prequels. Yes, exactly. And, Willow is no exception. He says, I've had this idea for 15 years, says Lucas about Willow, which he describes as not a caveman movie or a knight in shining armor movie, but a movie that takes place on Earth way in BC. Technology has finally advanced enough to supply the tools for him to make the movie. It always comes back to technology. And Willow is no exception when we talk about pushing the medium forward. If you've watched Light and Magic, and again, if you're a Sky Talkers listener and you haven't watched Light and Magic, you got to watch Light and Magic. <laughs> the fact that that came out this year, this summer, and we were blessed with such an amazing in-depth documentary about industrial light and magic and visual effects and completely understanding how it all works and what insane ingenuity happened and continues to happen today there. We're so lucky. And Willow was actually heavily featured in Light and Magic, which might have surprised some people, but it didn't surprise me because (laughs) the Willow was instrumental in ILM's development of text, especially digital morphing technology, which they're really known for for T2, the Terminator, Terminator 2. And It started here (laughs) in Karina Longworth's George Lucas biography. Yes, Karina Longworth is married to Ryan Johnson. I bought her biography because I thought that was an interesting connection. I also love Karina Longworth. I love her podcast. It's so good. You must remember this. If you like film history, definitely check it out. She talks about Willow in an interesting light. I'm just going to read it. Willow today is perhaps most notable as the production that impelled Lucas's ILM team to invent the computer graphics process known as morphing, in which one can be made made to seamlessly transform into another. It was developed for a single shot in this forgettable film in which an actress appears as a woman only after first passing through the bodies of a goat, ostrich, turtle, and tiger. Within three years, it would be considered the hottest advance in special effects, appearing most notably in Terminator 2, Judgment Day, 1991, in the music video for Michael Jackson's Black or White. Um, I Also, just as a note, I think it's really cool that the morphing technology is what Willow... Became known for in the special effects world and the technology world, um, because, like <laughs> on a story level, the act of transformation is so central to um, fairy tale characters and as a plot device, but also as like a magical moment. And it feels like, yes, of course, this is the where that would, like that sort of technology would be explored here in this piece of fairy tale, um, this fantasy. I don't know this fantasy movie and they would really like drive that point home and show us like the most incredible form of transformation in uh, like technologically in live action that I had that most people had ever seen at that point. Right. ILM did not win the Oscar. They actually lost to themselves <laughs> for who framed Roger Ma- Rabbit. I love the idea that they're just like betting against them- themselves <laughs> in the Oscars for visual effects. Um Dennis Murin actually goes on to talk about how the film was an awful lot of work under the most difficult possible conditions, which is doing effects work in daylight instead of dark or nighttime. It's three times harder. There was this two-headed dragon at the end, and there were these brownies that had to be all over the place. And then about the morphing technology, he says, George didn't really care what happened in between, but he knew the scene started with a goat and ended with a woman. (laughs) Of course, it's like, George didn't care. We're just, you got to figure it out. I wish I could
1: ask George the reason, like, why goat first, you know? I mean, I know that she is a goat, but, like, why do we pick pick goat over, like, turtle or tiger uh, to be, like, her main uh, animal? Uh, I don't know. I love the
0: goat. Me too. Because then she could say, willow. (laughs) I talked about how my my parents love this movie. My mom says that all the time. The like goat voice.
1: She calls me. She's like, Willow, you idiot. (laughs) Willow. I yeah, when so again, I only watched Willow for the first time a couple of months ago, but I was completely charmed by The Goat, um, by Charlene, Charlindria right? Is that how you say her name? Uh, and her whole relationship with Willow, I I thought it was great. I, I really loved it. Um, anyway, and The Goat, the morphing scene, the pigs of it all, it, <laughs> it was great. It was great.
0: There's so much to love in Willow, which we'll talk about in part two. But uh, yeah, the transformation scene, like it really, once you know that that was the first time they ever could do that, I think we're sort of desensitized to that now. You realize that that was, that must've been so difficult. And again, when Dennis Mirren talks about how hard it is to work in like complete daylight, yeah, there are a ton of scenes in Willow that are in the daylight. There are absolutely gorgeous matte paintings in Willow and the stop motion effects are amazing. I think the creatures are, um, great and scary. And yeah, I, th- I think that ILM just really worked so hard on this. And you can tell it, it to me, it holds up. Even the Brownie work holds up. It's so funny to me. I don't know. Um, It does have like, obviously that like 80s sheen. It's not perfect in the way that it is now, but I I still think it, it, it holds up to me at least.
1: Yeah, I think so. I think it held up for me. It felt like an 80s movie, but... In like the best way possible, I think, if you know what I mean. But yeah, the actual special effects of it, I thought, were super well done, and it felt, it felt like a continuation from Star Wars, like especially having Watchlight and Magic, and kind of knowing you know, some of these these things behind the scenes that were going on, I feel like you can really see the development uh, in in that movie.
0: Yeah, definitely. So after Willow comes out, the fandom, I, I guess, was sort of small. Um, there were three Willow novels that released. I have not read them, but they are truly wild sounding. <laughs> Willow gets a new name and his name in the yeah. In the movie and in the in the books is Thorn Drumheller. Mm, what yeah. is that? Why? Um, anyway, I'm really glad that we have the sequel series, <laughs> <laughs> Not these these novels, because I think that when now we have the sequel so, series, now that we have the sequel series. I can really tell like how much of a rich fantasy world this is and I'm glad that they're like digging deep into it. It seems like there's a lot to play with and explore. It's also just really curious to me how despite the so-so reviews of Willow and maybe it was just like a timing thing, maybe it just wasn't right, I don't know. George really like never let go of the thought of fantasy and fairy tale stories as being necessary and relevant and good to tell. He continues to tell really similar stories like for the next 20 years. I also, one small thing that I wanted to mention is evil General Kale was named after Pauline Kale, who is one of uh, George's like harshest critics. Um, <laughs> this is like particularly, it's both funny and cruel, but like, it's okay. I just think it's, <laughs> it's just a funny little um, fact. And then, and just again, in our conversation about how George just like continues on <laughs> pushes through George just has always hated critics I mean he wore that shirt that now Caitlin and I both have that's a famously terrible review of Star Wars and yeah I just think it's funny that there's a character <laughs> named after a critic and I have to wonder what does what did Pauline K- KL think of General KL probably <laughs> hated him so quite
1: <laughs> Hi, funny I, I want that kind of money you know (laughs) yeah (laughs) i want that kind of power
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm. i know to be just
1: a a, a little bit petty every once in a while you know
0: yeah and i think that george is that like he really does infuse a lot of that pettiness in his stories especially in the like i think from here on out to be honest um maybe in indiana jones as well but yeah willow um, an interesting part of Lucasfilm history. And I'm just really glad that we're given the opportunity to dive deeper into this and that it's getting the resurgence that it deserves. Yeah,
1: absolutely. I mean, there's a reason why this series can even exist today. You know, it's not just because John Kasdan wanted it to, you know what I mean? Like there, right. <laughs> there's more to it than, than just that. But also, I think it's cool that Lucasfilm is like, I don't know. Maybe this wasn't the most successful thing Lucasfilm has ever put out, but yeah, let's let's make a series about it. Let's you know, let's go let's go hard into this fantasy genre again, mm-hmm. uh, you know. And and as we've been talking about, just really go all in in the fairy tale. And uh, how does George describe it in that New York profile? Um, of earth takes place on earth uh in that kind of very tactile uh yeah like lord of the rings um rings of power kind of vibe
0: so let's talk about because i think we're teetering on the edge here let's talk about (laughs) our favorite elements of willow in part two
1: all right welcome to part two where we're talking about some of our favorite elements from the 1988 film willow When did you first watch this, Charlotte? Because I think I know, but I actually can't remember.
0: (laughs) It's years ago. And it was honestly like maybe like four years ago. And then I've seen it probably before I saw the entire thing. I probably saw it on TV before then. Yeah. With my my mom. But it didn't really have an impact until I was like, you know what? Let's watch it four years ago or so. And then recently again, I think that when John Chu was originally on for like the showrunner of – the series, I gave it another watch. um, And then he left. If you remember, there's Mm -hmm. a little bit of a shakeup with the- A few times. Production of the series. A few times. Yeah. Again, it happens. It's Lucasfilm. It happens. But yeah, I think that's where I rediscovered it and saw it with new eyes, especially as someone as, you know, Caitlin and I are coming up on our six-year podcast anniversary. And throughout the six years- we've gone on deeper dives and um, into Lucasfilm than I would have ever thought we would. So I, I think that through the years, whenever I revisit anything with the Lucasfilm production stamp on it, I look at it through a different set of eyes. Right. Yeah. And yeah, so that's my Willow experience. Um, and I've seen it a couple times after that as well.
1: Yeah, I've like I said, I've only seen it this year, but it was super fun. And I remember texting you through it like, Oh, what I, I specifically the back half of it. I was texting
0: you, going, "Whoa!" I know <laughs> the back is half is, is what really like it's it to the next level. <laughs> yeah, I think that to me, the first ten minutes you're like, "Whoa, this is a crazy story," and then, <laughs> and then the last like the last half of it, you're like, "Whoa, this is." bonkers like they're turning into <laughs> pigs there's like <laughs> it's it's pretty violent too oh my gosh and the brain
1: that sticks out to me um <laughs> the guy that melts and it's just his brain there and willow is like whoa
0: <laughs> yeah that reminds me of the shot in raiders of the lost ark yeah
1: yeah yeah, um, yeah
0: at the end a lot of a lot of shots like that it seems like they use similar technology to what was happening in raiders at the end there when they open the ark of the covenant mm-hmm. i i had always thought that stop motion was really fun. And to me, Willow has like an underrated gem kind of aspect to it where you watch it. And I, I sort of love that about movies when you can find something that like, isn't really talked about so much where you're like, wow, this one's, this is wild. This is crazy. I think in, I think we all can think of one movie that we love because it's like that, you know? Yeah. For me, what really put Willow over the edge, and I know that I'm not the only one here, is Mad Mardigan and Shorsha and the relationship there. Gosh. So good. So good. So good. good. They just look so good together. The enemies to lovers of it all. I... I uh, it's so good. And the fact that they were married in real life, I just can't. Yeah, I, I can't didn't know guess. that until you
1: told me uh, today, actually, I was <laughs> that um, they were actually married in real life and had kids I, together.
0: I it's just... Yep, a boy and a girl that look just like <laughs> freaking Kit and Eric. <laughs> it's
1: so crazy. <laughs> I feel kind of weird about it, honestly, but... um, <laughs> it's, fine. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. It's going to blow right past it. Blow right past <laughs> it. Yeah, yeah. But I... Oh, my gosh. I loved their story so much. And Sorsha, I thought she was incredible. It was just so fun to see her, um, like her whole character. And even, you know, we'll talk about it in the next part. But seeing her now in the series, I don't know. I just I really enjoyed her character and her going, you know, from someone serving her mother to them being completely bamboozled by this guy in her tent telling her he loves her and then <laughs> so frustrated when it turns out he was you know that he wasn't in his right mind I don't know I just loved it but they're very was it their very first meeting or was it after the tent i don't know she kicks she straight up kicks, like, him, in she the kicks face him in the face
0: from the horse <laughs> it's, just... <laughs> it's such a good shot it was so it, good it's so violent like you know it hurt i know
1: that she really kicked him. <laughs> <it>. i'm like <laughs> yeah. that's what i feel in my bones and it was and their banter when they're on the horse together um like riding through the canyon or wherever they are and she just like jumps off and is like i'm out of here <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, it's just so good. You know, Lucasfilm just loves an enemies to lovers fairy tale ending. Honestly, like the fact that this was a fairy tale ending too is just so sweet and great. Yeah. Um I I loved that. Um I think in the trailers for the new Willow series, one of the brownies is like, Ooh, a happy kissy ending. You know, right. I, I love that. That's how I feel about <laughs> Willow is that there's all this like crazy stuff that happens, like wild back half with like violence and stuff. But yeah, it's a yeah. happy ending. And that's like that's Lucasfilm to me. Yeah. Um yeah, yeah. at its core. Well,
1: I just I love that Sorcia just gave in to the romantic feelings immediately. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was like I don't know. I think you can watch it and kind of wonder why she fell for Mad Mardigan so quickly. But I think thinking about the other aspect of her upbringing and her childhood and all of that, it was kind of like this opportunity to be in love and to be loved. And she took it and then was hurt when it wasn't reality, actually. But then decided to make it reality and take it into her own hands you know what i mean and i don't know i just kind of love that that she that she immediately was like on mad martigan's side um it, when it when it came down to it you know like i know she runs away and, and everything and comes back with that with their army but when she has the opportunity she kisses him like rather than kill she kisses and it's great
0: <laughs> it is so great uh like i mentioned i think the matte paintings in this movie are so gorgeous. And I was wondering, Caitlin, do you remember seeing any of them at the Lucasfilm offices? Like, where are they?
1: I don't remember seeing Willow ones. The thing, I'm pretty sure they changed those paintings. Um, all the time I don't, yeah. don't want to say all the time but they get switched out I think a lot of the stuff in the Lucasfilm offices uh, in San Francisco get switched out because when I was there it was um, there was still like all this stuff from Solo that was up and there were still Ralph McQuarrie uh, matte paintings and stuff up but it was a lot from Solo that was out so I think they switched them out and I don't remember seeing Willow I remember seeing I think E.T. And then, um, Mm -hmm. like, original trilogy stuff uh, as far as matte paintings.
0: I wonder where they are because they're just gorgeous. Yeah. And I think part of – I don't know. I think that the light and magic made me really appreciate matte paintings and the art of matte paintings. Mm -hmm. And, in fact, Caitlin and I at the Academy Museum saw some really good matte paintings that were just gorgeous or, like, backdrops. And just the understanding that element of filmmaking, I think – and then seeing that in in willow itself when you're looking for it you're like dang gorgeous fairy tale work you know mm-hmm. um i think another favorite thing for me about willow and something we've been talking about is just how much it adheres to fairy tale signifiers while also being so filled with humor and it's so funny and the new series is so funny too but the i think that there's a And I don't want to make anyone mad about this, but I think with like other fantasy series like Narnia or Lord of the Rings, even Game of Thrones, like they take themselves so seriously. It is so like, here is the lore and like you must respect the lore. That's my perception of it. Okay. (laughs) But I think with Willow specifically, it was a little bit like, yeah, this is super fun. Like we're on this fun journey. (laughs) We're bringing this baby back. And I yeah yeah. and I think that you feel the same way about the new willow. Maybe it's a little bit more s- serious lore, but i I definitely like that aspect of it that it's light that it's fun, you know, and while still kind of checking all the boxes for those uh, fairy tale moments,
1: I think there's definitely like a spectrum of tone when it comes to fantasy, right? And I think we're so used now, especially with something like Game of Thrones and even Lord of the Rings, of being kind of on that further darker. And a fantasy. And so Willow, that is so over the top fantasy, but also still super lighthearted. I feel like that in and of itself was unique in the time and is still unique today. You know, we were talking about earlier of wanting something that's more fantasy um, as, you know, even more uh, a way of escapism from our current world and reality. Um, Willow, I think, is kind of at the perfect time, especially right now, of being so lighthearted and having fun with itself i I think the series does this really well and i think the movie did too but i think the series kind of excels in that genre of just i don't know wants you to laugh and Mm -hmm. thinking about the movie too the fact that right like this spectrum of tone you know like if game of thrones is on one end i think willow is on the other representing the two ends of that spectrum honestly the fact that Mm -hmm. the whole army is turned into pigs the fact that that's the trick at the end with uh, Bav Morda and all of it. It's it's so hilarious. It's so ridiculous. It's so good, mm-hmm. you
0: know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Again, it just doesn't take itself so seriously. Yeah. But it's, it's the audience is along for the ride. Mm-hmm. I also love that it really is this different group of misfits on this quest. I think you sort of get that in the series. But I really think you get that in the movie so much. There's just a huge variance of like ages of different types of people. It's just great. I don't know. I love it. It's so um unique and different than what was in the space at the time, I guess.
1: Well, I I loved this kind of pairing of Mad Mardigan and Willow in the film. It just it's I don't know. It was just such a, a fun duo between the two of them. The way that they became friends, the way that they were kind of forced to work together, and then, you know, even having Alora along for the ride, um, and, like, it's not along for the ride. Of course, she's the main catalyst for the ride. But, you know what I mean? Um, having this baby between them <laughs> that they're supposed to take care of. It just, it worked really well. And I think, like, seeing Mad Mart again kind of come to care for Alora as the film progressed. And Willow, who was so compassionate. And, like, once Willow fell in love with Alora, he was in it until the end you know you know what i mean like no matter what it took and mad martigan was the same way and i think that's just i don't know i willow as as a whole is very charming and i think that's part of its charm i think it's like we talk about this a lot with you know the the boy and the baby or the 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 dad and the baby right it's part of why the mandalorian is so charming because it's you know masked Mandalorian and cute baby Grogu. You know, it's a good trope. And Willow is another example of why it's a good trope.
0: Yeah. (laughs) So true. Also, I don't think we've talked enough about how good Warwick Davis is. Yeah. He's so good. And I'm so glad that he's back. And it's clear that this was a role that had such a huge impact on him. Um, He's also, like, so funny. And again, I think that comes into play in the new series a lot. But he is so charming and like really um easy to watch I guess uh, in in Willow, you know? He's he's great.
1: Yeah, I think and in, in the series he falls into Willow back into that role so easily. It's kind of incredible, honestly. It really mm-hmm. it really doesn't feel like time has passed and I can't say that about other reboots or sequels and prequels you know what I mean living in the Mm -hmm. era of you know stories continuing on which is a lot of Star Wars and now Willow falls into that camp too and I think Mm -hmm. Warwick Davis um did such a great job uh in the series and 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 of course in the original film too that it became uh such an iconic part of his of his career
0: yeah also We need to mention that the music by James Horner, who also did the music for Titanic, um, is amazing. It is so good. Mm -hmm. The theme is nostalgia bait to me. And I'm not even that nostalgic for the theme, but I just think the theme (laughs) is amazing. When it is sort of echoed in the new show, I'm like, ah, this is so exciting. every time (laughs) so good (laughs) i think he really um there's some quotes i didn't put them in our google doc but if you are so inclined to research james horner did his research about different types of fantasy genre music and he like dove super deep into combining a, a lot of different types of sounds to create the theme and just the score overall um it's great it's a really excellent score
1: Yeah, it's one I haven't listened to enough, honestly. And especially after the series now, I really want to have it on in the background while I'm working, you know? Yeah, definitely. I think the thing about Willow is it reminds me of that meme that's really popular on TikTok right now of, I want to go to there. And Mm. I think the music, the matte paintings, the whole look of Willow, I I hear that that sound, that viral sound in my head of I want to go to there,
0: <laughs> Tina Fey and Thirty Rock.
1: Like, yes, listen, I've never seen Thirty Rock. So, um,
0: oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, uh, so good. I yeah, I totally feel that, and I think that's one of the reasons why we had we thought the red carpet was so cool. Is like living in that yeah. fantasy element is so fun.
1: Yeah, it really is. Um, I want to do it more. <laughs> Yes, please. (laughs) I would like to go to a fantasy forest and just frolic for a little bit, you know?
0: Yeah, Caitlin, what were we saying when we were trying to figure out the vibe of what we were going to wear to the premiere? There was three different elements of a Venn diagram. We were like... It's cottage core mixed with Evermore, yeah, mixed with Endor, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs>
1: cottage core, Endor, Evermore. That was it. That was the vibe.
0: <laughs> that is the vibe. It's the perfect vibe for Willow. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, it is. I-, I love it. It feels, it feels like your imagination unlocked in a lot of ways, and I think totally. the the red carpet kind of captured that in a really cool way that. I haven't seen from Lucasfilm at these kinds of events before. Totally.
0: Let's talk about the new series. Yes, I'm so excited.
1: Listen, big deal. You got another problem. Women always figure out the truth. Always.
0: Okay, so welcome to part three. We're going to be talking about the first two episodes of Willow, the new series, 2022. We will be diving into spoilers. So if you haven't seen the show, go watch it right now and then come back for our quick little discussion about (laughs) these first two episodes. So Caitlin, how are we liking the new show? What are your thoughts?
1: I really like it. I really like it. So full disclosure, we did have screeners for these ahead of time. You watched it before the premiere, but I did not. So the premiere was um, my first experience with the series. And uh, it was your second or third time watching it too, which I think is interesting to compare like, multiple viewings of course of these Lucasfilm Mm -hmm. shows that's usually what we do what we all do right like we like to rewatch things as (laughs) as many times Mm -hmm. as we can um but I hadn't seen it yet at that point because I I wanted to save it for when we were actually in uh Los Angeles and it was so great on the big screen and even more than that seeing it with an audience we've said this a couple times but seeing Star Wars with other people seeing new things with other people but lucasfilm star wars with other people it's just the best experience ever and we've had so much tv from lucasfilm live action series that these opportunities to see it in groups with other people are so few and far between that they they really do just feel magical and with a show like willow that is so magical it was such a special experience and i think that's kind of what i take away uh from the first two episodes um the first two episodes set up a lot and are like a great reminder of kind of everything that's gone on in the Willow universe. But I think it's a great introduction to all of our characters. I think there's a big cast here. And I think one thing that I took away is that you can tell that they had such a good time filming this show. <laughs> and I, I truly love all of this cast. I think it's so fun. I think you described it earlier as having like a YA. Tone. And I don't think I realized how true that would be until seeing it. Um, I think it's a little surprising how much of a of a YA tone uh it has. Mm-hmm. Like I don't think people young gonna... adult, by the way, if you don't know what yeah. YA is. And I feel like we mostly talk about books that way of, of YA, middle grade, adult fiction, that kind of stuff. But it really does feel like a YA fantasy novel come to life uh, and is just a lot of fun and yeah, I, this cast is incredible, and I'm really excited to have a cast full of young people. There obviously are older people in the cast, but our main characters like um, Jade, Laura, um, Eric, Kit. Sorry, <laughs> Kit. Uh, they're all really young, and they they are actually really young. They're not like. 30 playing 20 (laughs) they're all in their early 20s you know what I mean I don't know it's just there's that vibrance to having this big young cast having a fun romp through the forest (laughs) on this quest that is just uh, I keep using this word but very charming and you you want to be there with them on this journey
0: yeah, I completely, completely agree. I think that they have just really good chemistry. Like everyone really works well together and it really is so fun. <laughs> and like Caitlin mentioned, it was really nice watching it with an audience, especially with a series like this that has a lot of humor because everyone was laughing. They were having a really good time. Mm-hmm. And when when Kit and Jade kissed, the... The room was electric. People were so excited. And I think that it's just proof that people want representation in the series. And it's so, in the series, it's so good. I don't know. I love them. Mm -hmm. I love every character. There isn't a character I don't like, honestly, Yeah, genuinely. I'm pretty obsessed with the series at this point. Again, full disclosure, Caleb and I have actually seen seven episodes at this point. um, And we're only talking about two, but yeah, amazing. I really like it. And it goes to some really good places, guys. It's really good. <laughs> the, the journey, they just keep on journeying. They just keep on journeying. <laughs> they just keep on journeying. <laughs> They're questing. They're, they are,
1: <laughs> the only spoiler I will give you for the next few episodes is that they only talk about their journey as a quest. <laughs> which <laughs> I think just leans really into the humor of this show of yes we're on a quest or they'll talk to other people about quests and they they only use the word quest to talk about these adventures that they go on which I don't know it's just kind of funny to me
0: um totally yeah it's self-referential it's very self-aware
1: but it has a very 21st century humor like a lot Mm -hmm. of the jokes even in the first two episodes they're very I don't know like you would kind of expect to see them on like a sitcom not a sitcom but like I don't know something that's not set in the Willow world or like in that, it's not something you would see in Game of Thrones. Let me rephrase it that way. And it's just, it's very fresh. It's very lighthearted. The show continues to be hilarious. I keep texting Charlotte quotes as I'm watching it. Like, this is so funny. And it definitely has some really surprising things that are coming uh, in the next few episodes.
0: Yeah, definitely. Who's your favorite character?
1: I, I... I don't know. You asked me this um, before the premiere, like on the poster, you were like, which character are you most excited? Yeah, just from like looks, because I hadn't really done a ton of research into the characters. Like I said, I wanted to kind of be uh, pretty surprised uh, when we saw it in the theater. And the one I pointed to was Prince Graydon. And I don't know if he's my favorite, but I do have such a soft spot for him.
0: (laughs) I'm pretty sure you pointed to Borman. No, it was Graydon. It was great. In oh, okay, well, that's good. I was yeah. like, I think, I think I was like, good choice. Yeah, I mean, I love, I love more <laughs> To be and... honest, I think I would have said that about anyone. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> good choice.
1: Good choice. <laughs> the, the thing is, I I love Alora. I think mm-hmm. she feels like a Disney princess in kind of such a, a great, refreshing way. Um, and I think you're going to talk about this about her reveal and her identity and, and kind of the ways that we can compare that to a character like Ray, for example but I love that she is just so soft and feminine and doesn't know what she's doing. She's here for love. (laughs) She's so (laughs) naive to compare her to Kit and um, how Kit is just not a fan of, of Dove um, uh, or Laura, you know, but she, which is like understandable. You understand
0: Kit's motivations for not being a huge fan of Dove slash Laura. Yeah.
1: It's, I don't know. I I love her. I think her comedic timing is really great. She plays this character super well. I think probably my favorite scene from... I don't want to say favorite, but the one where I was laughing the most, I think, is when they when they realize that Alora is watching them, right? When they first embark on their quest and they're like, no, 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 no. You have to go home. And she's like, no, I'm going to stay. I'm going to come with you. I can cook. I'm a phenomenal cook. And then later she gives her food to Borman and he's like, oh my God, this is the best. And she just mouths phenomenal. phenomenal. <laughs> it's, just, <laughs> so good. it's so funny. And I don't know. Yeah. She feels so fresh and they all do, but I really like Alora.
0: Yeah, I like her too. I don't know who my favorite character is. It's probably Alora. I really like Kit. I honestly, I'm a sucker for a legacy child of <laughs> the main characters of the past movie. Like you give me that, I'm I'm here for the story. You know, I yeah. love the struggles. I it's I I it's great every time. And I again, I really like Alora and I really want to talk about the the reveal because it happened fast yeah. so did you guess that so that was her that she was going to be Laura? i did not yeah that dove was Laura. no i didn't did you think it was going to be jade or did you just not really think about it i
1: didn't think it was going to be jade um i thought that she would be with eric at first like i mm. kind of thought that that's where eric went mm. but that that's was fair that was like when we first turned on I didn't think about it too much, I'll be honest. But I had kind of speculated that maybe, you know, in the beginning of the episode when everyone's talking about, you know, she was hidden away, taken away, all that stuff, and then Eric is taken, I kind of thought that that's where they would end up. Um, yeah. So I was really surprised that it was revealed so early on.
0: Yeah. I talked to a couple people. Kristen, our friend Kristen, was next to me, and she leaned over and goes, I think Jade is Alora," And I was like, interesting. Yeah. Could be. And I think the point of, like, in a lot of ways, Jade, Aaron Kellyman, having red hair is all intents and purposes a red herring. (laughs) Red (laughs) herring. Anyway, um, I think that you're supposed to think that. You're supposed to be like, oh, maybe it's her. If it's going to be anyone, maybe it's her because she was in the castle. Like, she has a tragic backstory. You're supposed to think about that. And that is given to you in the first, like, 10 minutes. But instead, it's Alora who is really similar to, like, Aurora, Sleeping Beauty in a lot of ways, hidden away in the castle, as, like, a kitchen maid, you know, and has this – it is meant to rule the kingdom, but doesn't really know it. But deep down, I have to imagine that she probably did know it because they dyed her hair.
1: Well, even the fact that Eric doesn't know her name,
0: you right. know, it's like, it, oh, it, who is she really? Who is she? Yeah, and I think – what this the first episode brings up in my head <laughs> in this comparison to Star Wars is that you know this is like similar to the Force Awakens the story of Willow in this the series Willow is a story of belonging in a lot of ways i think that each character is finding out on this quest who they are And where they belong, with whom they belong, who are they? Their identity—the whole gambit, right? It's a great story. It's a great coming-of-age story. But I think that there's when there's a question of who is everyone. That just makes me think of Ray and the Force Awakens, and who these people like belong to. And right away, we find out that Kit and Eric are Mad Marigan and Sorsha's children, which is great. And and goddamn, they look so much like. (laughs) them. It's so crazy. They cast this so well. It's insane. Not only do they look like Val Kilmer and uh, Sorsha, but they, they look like each other. They look like siblings when they're not. So weird. And twins, it's, it's crazy. It's Sometimes freaking. casting like blows my mind. <laughs> and I love the fact that these actors are sort of unknown to me. I That feels very Star Wars in a lot of ways too in that we're introduced to these people that I'm going to be obsessed with throughout the season. But back to the comparison to The Force Awakens, we're journeying on to find an old wizard who has hidden himself away. It feels very much like Luke Skywalker at the end of The Force Awakens. But I have to say, I think that Willow is taking what – might not have worked for audiences with the sequel trilogy. I'm sort of speaking objectively here about like waiting for this identity reveal or being strung along about this identity reveal and giving to it to us right away with who Elora is. I've seen some people sort of debate whether or not we take this at face value, but I think the show is telling us to take it at face value that this is who she is, that she's trying her hardest to work with magic, she immediately was able to cross the veil. Um, She has magic within her. And I think there's just a little bit of a subversion, I think, of what we're familiar with, with something like The Force Awakens and questioning identity. And instead, they give it to us right up front and decide that throughout the entire series, we're gonna unpack what that means. What does it mean when someone finds out that they are the chosen one, that they are destined to rule? And even with Kit, I think you also can have this conversation about how does she compare to a, a Ray character as well when she finds out right away that she has this dark blood as being the grandchild of Belmorda. Um, What does that mean and how is that going to affect both of these children and how does it like affect her relationship with Alora too? I just think we're in for a treat because we were blessed with this information right up front, <laughs> right? We didn't have to wait this entire series to find out who and where Alora Dannon is. Also, I think Alora, in a lot of ways was styled to look like Rey. And I just don't think this can be ignored. She has armbands that are very similar in the costume style. Her outfit is Pretty similar. It is more feminine than Ray, but it is very similar structurally to Ray's costume. In fact, in one of the shots, I think when she's cooking, her hair is up in like buns that are very similar to Ray, a little bit messier, which I think is sort of how Alora is too. I don't know. Um, I there's a lot of connections. I think that they they know who they're dealing with, they know. I think John Kasdan knows who the, this audience is. It's mm-hmm. Lucasfilm fans who have watched the sequel trilogy, who probably like Ray, but kind of like wish we were getting a little bit more of. This is I'm kind of speaking from my own experience here that we got a little bit more of an exploration about like what does that mean when you are destined to bring down the greatest evil of all? Yeah, and when you are tasked with that, how does that feel? Because I think um, when we when Caitlin and I have spent hours talking about the rise of Skywalker and Ray's reveal as a Palpatine and how that could have been really powerful if it was, you know, brought up in the beginning and that she was dealing with that right away. And I'm not saying that Allura's, um origin is like the same as Ray being a, from the Palpatine bloodline. It's really not, but it is a similar like, identity crisis that was not hugely explored with Ray, that is definitely explored with the characters in Willow. And I think we're in for a really good opportunity. And I think that John Kasdan and the writers, I have to imagine this comes up. And in this entire episode that we've talked about, Lucasfilm is so self-referential within their own work. It feels like it is a real subversion of what we know and what we've been talking about for almost 10 years when it comes to the sequel trilogy.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. And I think I just wanted to touch on, I think, all of the relationships between all of these characters. I think the first two episodes, particularly the first episode, did a good job of setting it all up for the the complications that are going to come down the line for all of these people, how they care about one another, how they don't. Um, You know, we have Kit and Graydon that are supposed to get married to join the kingdoms. We've got, oh my gosh, uh, Sorsha being kind of mean really mean to willow in these flashbacks shocking i was shocking. shocked
0: <laughs> the theater was sort of floored you're we we not like, gonna lie Whoa. we were like that was, that we was so mean. <laughs> mean
1: that was so mean when he when she tells him that he's so compassionate and brave but he's not a great sorcerer and never will be i was like sorcerer i've been <laughs> i've been on your team <laughs> babe what is this <laughs> anyway uh, I think that is something very interesting to me about how that would come about. Um, of course, we've got Kit and Jade, which is a great dynamic, a great romance. Um, yeah, everyone in our theater was ecstatic about it and you you can feel the tension like leaving mm-hmm. off the screen also i just want to shout out erin kellyman and that her character jade she it's so good and only gets better and i think that uh erin kellyman plays jade so um earnest i think is perhaps the right word but she just Oh, she's such like a hero, you know, she's so good. And I, I've loved her character in the series so far. And I loved her like longing looks for Kit in the beginning. And even when she's frustrated with Kit and especially like in that dinner scene, uh, when Kit is basically so frustrated when she learns that Jade is uh, going, I I guess to be trained um, away from the castle I just thought it was so great. And um, they kind of reminded me, honestly, of uh, the line from Cinta to Vel in Andor, where Cinta says, I'm a mirror. Uh, I feel like Kit and Jade are kind of like that too, because I feel like Jade is always the one to tell Kit what she needs to hear in any given mm. moment. And it, it just made me think of that, you know, I'm a mirror uh, to you, uh, Vel. And it, I don't know, I kind of thought about that with um, Kit and Jade. And anyway, I. I think Aaron Kellyman does such a great job, and the action sequences in these first couple of episodes were so good, especially the one where Eric gets taken. Just mm-hmm. loved it, and I love, mm-hmm. I love Eric. He's he's so hot. He's, he is hot, <laughs> and he's such he's such a himbo, but I know. he's so lovable. And you know, I found myself in the first episode wondering like why. It was Kit that had to be married and not Eric and that that was like a valid, um, what's the word? Like Kit was understandably upset about that in in general, right? To be married off to someone she doesn't love. But I like, just loved when Eric was like, I'm never going to leave you, right? Like, I'm here for you. Uh, of course, then he is kidnapped. <laughs> but, you know, that wasn't his choice. <laughs> no, it's all his fault. Exactly. And I don't know. He just, he's easily, immediately lovable. And you can kind of understand why Dove was head over heels for him. But I got to say, the ship I'm on is not even Kit and Jade. It is absolutely Kit and Jade. But it is also Graydon and Alora. I know. Ugh. Man, I'm here for it. I love Graydon so much. He's such much. a soft boy. And
0: <laughs> he can read these ancient languages. He's so he king. has a past we don't understand. He's so quiet. He's and <laughs> he didn't want to go on the quest. <laughs> right. He didn't want to go on the quest. He's like, wait, really? Like we're so relatable, a relatable king. <laughs> like <laughs> so good. I-, I also I I really like Borman. He's so funny. He's hilarious. Yeah. I, I'm again. I'm. I, we should go back to talking about Alora and Graydon because this is the ship I'm on. I don't know what the portmanteau name of either of these, Kit and Jade, Graydon and Alora, Gray Laura, maybe.
1: G- Kit, Kit, Kit oh, Jade doesn't really
0: have <laughs> a good combination. Uh,
1: they need yeah. like a um, like Storm Pilot Ginger Rose. They need something like that. So you true. know what I mean? That's not like their names because yeah. I don't think their names um, there's not like a Raylo. Way they fit together. The anyway, let us know. Graylo, like I said, Graylo. Graylo could be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> could be. El- Elden. Elden. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I Graydon just immediately falls in love with Alora, um, and it's it's great to watch.
0: Yeah. Yeah. He he believes in her you love to see it you just love to see it we we do so what do you think about the music at the end of the titles I
1: this was kind of the most shocking part to me and I still I will say it's not my favorite thing ever or perhaps I wish they used that music more in the episodes you know what I mean because it does feel it feels quite jarring I think when you get to the credits I think it fits the tone of the show but I still think there's, yeah, I still think it's pretty jarring um, when you first hear it. Of course, I'm used to it now, but I still, I think I think I wish some of the that type of music was throughout the actual show. You know what I mean? Or throughout mm-hmm. the actual mm-hmm. episode. Because I think that could be really fun in a show like Willow uh, with that kind of younger lean to it. Um, I think it could work really well within the actual episodes. And then, of course, work within the credits.
0: Yeah, I, I agree with you. I kind of like the music because I think it's like weird and funny. <laughs> but I don't know if that's just me letting go about that. But I do agree with you that I wish it was used more within the series. Maybe it will. Yeah. But definitely, I think it was probably the thing that people were most jarred by mm-hmm. that I experienced in the theater when we were there. Yeah. People being like, whoa. Yeah, you know? I definitely was. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that it also goes back to like, who is the audience for this show? The audience is like you and me, Lucasfilm fans, people who've seen the original, and like potentially like a young adult audience. And I think that's what they're trying to get at. And maybe they like leaned a little too hard into that with the music and being like, no, it's like fun and cool. For the cool jivey, you know? Yeah. And at the end of the day, like I kind of want to listen to the soundtrack. So maybe it did work. Like I would listen to all the songs that they have included. So Maybe that was the vibe, the licensing of it all.
1: I mean, yeah, I, I would too. Don't get me wrong; like, I'm here for a good, a good soundtrack, right? Yeah, uh, but I, yeah, it's fine. Yeah. It's fine. I don't know if it's a choice I would make if it wasn't in the actual series, but mm-hmm. you know, it's like okay, it is what it is. It's yeah. fun.
0: Um, Did we talk about how Mims is played by Warwick <gasps> Davis's daughter? I. She's one of my favorite parts of
1: the first yeah. couple episodes. I thought she did such a great job, and she, I loved her relationship. That is, of course, Warwick Davis's daughter, uh, and they have understandably great chemistry on screen. But <laughs> I love what she represents for Willow. We, I don't think we've talked enough about the character of Willow uh, within the series. Now, I think Warwick Davis is doing an incredible job, and. His portrayal of Willow and Willow at this point in life is so believable. I think I said this earlier. It doesn't feel like a reboot. It truly feels like a continuation of Willow's story and who he is and his struggles and the successes that he's had in life you know when we see him again in the series i don't know i just i'm really enjoying his character in the show um but mims oh my gosh i love her so much when she meets alora and she's like you were such a giant baby (laughs) It was so fun, and and her her pep talk to Willow of telling him that he's got to be the one to go and go on this quest and help Alora and save them all. It was just so genuine and heartfelt, and I thought she did such a great job. I I really loved
0: Mims. Mm-hmm. I did too. I think that the Willow that we're meeting is a man who also I don't know if doubts his strength as a sorcerer is the right terminology but I do think that he doesn't understand at this point in his life I think he's experienced some like things that have broken him a little bit right I think we saw that with the 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 flashback with Sorsha calling him not a great sorcerer so then immediately we're like I think he's having some like personal identity doubts about like who he is and I think we'll see that be explored throughout the series about like how, like, who is he? Who is Willow? I think is a question that is going to be explored in the series, especially if he continues to train Alora. Like, what does that mean to be the same, like a similar figure to who he was in the Willow film as like a caregiver, gi- a, a person who has to d- bring Alora Dannon to her like fullest potential? It's It's Willow's... That's that's like Willow's purpose in a lot of ways. Right. Yeah. So how does he get back to that and how does he step into that role after all this time? Um, Because I think that, again, like I said, I think he's a little bit of a broken man and we're going to figure out why. Um, But again, I think that we can draw a bunch of comparisons to the Luke Skywalker again in The Force Awakens and The Last Jedi because of where we meet him, I guess, is just someone who um, hasn't really been in contact with the people that he went on that quest with all those years ago. Like, what happened? What's going on? What's the deal? What are What are his... Uh, like, it's the same questions we asked about Luke Skywalker. What's the deal? Yeah. I think what's different with Willow, though, is that he
1: is with his community still. Yes. But I think having yes. those flashbacks with Sorsha are kind of leading to what happened the fallout between Willow and, and sorcia and what was to happen with Alora the fact that he didn't even know where she went right um but then of course immediately recognizes her i think he is quick to take up the call to action again through the encouragement of his daughter Mims and i don't know i I really love his interactions, his relationship with Allura as it continues to develop. I think it's really great. But even the little bit that we've gotten so far, is just, it's a good mentor-apprentice relationship. One that, of yeah. course, we are very used to in Star Wars, but then, of course, is a uh, tale as old as time trope when it comes to fantasy
0: and fairy tale stories. hmm Yep. And again, I think that we're—I think we're going to continue to draw parallels between Ray with Alora, especially as she trains and comes into herself and figures out how she's going to save the universe. <laughs> it's a lot
1: on her shoulders. <sighs> yeah, she's uh, she's got a lot of pressure on her shoulders mm-hmm. right now. Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, technically they all do, right? Like, I think that's, they're all, like, working for something within this quest. Bormans is a little, like, muddled. Uh, Kit, I think, has a lot to prove as, the fact that her mother put her up for this, I think, is interesting. That she didn't disagree, that she knew that potentially Kit needed this. Um, And then she also has to prove herself as a knight, right? And then it will constantly test, I think, her relationship, Mm -hmm. right?
1: Yeah, I think so.
0: Jade as well has to prove herself as a knight as well, um, but and like how does how does Kit fit into that whole relationship dynamic? Um, yeah, I, I just think they all have something to prove and something to discover about themselves. Great, too. I think there's a lot to discover about Great.
1: Well, they all just need. They all like don't fit into their world as it exists or they're not fitting into it. Right. Kit doesn't want to get married. Um, Jade does want to go train to be a a knight, but they've made this exception for her. This once in a, in a lifetime exception for her, but her loyalty is uh, always going to be to Kit. I think we see that when she agrees to go on the quest with them and kind of give up her spot at training for the time being and Graydon, you know, I don't, I don't want to say he doesn't want to get married to Kit, but I don't think he wants to get married to Kit. He was going to, but it doesn't seem like something he wants to do. And Allura just has this completely new world and identity that has opened up to her and mm-hmm. Willow having to come back and help these people that by all accounts have rejected him. Sorsha has rejected him and now her children are the ones that need help. And yeah, it, and This journey is going to rewrite all of their relationships to each other. But then also, you know, when they come back, if they all come back, uh, when they all come back, you know, how are they're not just going to go back into these roles again. You know, Um, Mm -hmm. I would be very surprised if Kit and Graydon come back and get married. You know what I mean? It doesn't seem totally that's the story we're leading to here. So what how is the world going to change through this quest?
0: Totally. Yeah. Again, it's a story of belonging. Yeah. All right. I mean, loving Willow. Can't wait for more people to talk about it. really want more people to watch it because I really want there to make, be a season two. <laughs>
1: yes, I do too. Please let us know what the ship name is for Kit and Jade too, because now I keep kind of thinking about it and I'm not sure what it is.
0: The, the names are too short. I know. So... so- it's the star wars problem too. I-
1: <laughs> anyway, please tell us that <laughs> if you know what it is, if you've come across the unofficial official ship name for Kit and Jade. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that is going to wrap up this week's episode all about Willow and Lucasfilm. I hope you guys enjoyed it and are liking the show. If you want to hear more from us, you can find us on Twitter at SkytalkersPod or our personal handles. Charlotte's is at Clarity and mine is at Kaelin Plesher. We do also, of course, have our website, Skytalkers.com, our TikTok, our Instagram, Facebook, all great places to find us. And if you've left us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, thank you so, so much. We really do appreciate you taking the time. And if you have a couple seconds to spare, we would also so appreciate it if you left us a review on either of those platforms or your favorite podcasting platform of choice. It helps other people find our show. And if you're interested in other ways to support us and how to get involved in the Talkers Discord community, you can head on over to our Patreon and check out our different reward tiers there.
0: And I want to say a huge thank you to these patrons, David, Simon, Tim, Aldersey, Paul, Danny, Megan, Becky, Z. James, Nick, Christina, Rachel, Jessica, Emma, and Kara. Thank you so much for supporting us.
1: Yes, thank you guys so much. And until next time, may the force be with you.
0: May the force be with you.